Welcome to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. Unemployment is now at its lowest point since April of 2000. The May jobs report shows the unemployment rate fell to 3.8 percent. The economy added 223,000 jobs. That's versus the 190,000 that was expected. And the stock market seems to approve of the report. Joining me on the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast is Liz Ann Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Alexis. Great to be here. Just first off, your initial reactions to this report. Uh, It was strong across the board. So uh, you already talked about the payroll number. The expectation, I think, coming into this was 190, so well above that. Uh, All but 5,000 of the job creation of the 223 was private sector jobs. Only 5,000 was government sector jobs. And if you look under the hood of where jobs were created, the only negative was in temporary jobs. Now, some might view that as a positive. The only thing I would caution is that temporary jobs, that component of the payroll data is actually the most leading indicator. I'm not suggesting that the weakness there is is sending impending doom that we may be at a, a peak in terms of, of job growth or a low in terms of unemployment. It's just something to be mindful of. The unemployment rate, uh, interestingly, if it had the, – the, they round to 3.8. The actual number was 3.755. So we, we almost eked out enough to get it down to 3.7 percent. And given that unemployment claims, which was not part of this report – that's a separate report, of course – is the most leading of all jobs indicators and continues to improve, that does suggest that we've still got traction for the unemployment rate to come down lower. And it takes less than 100,000 jobs created on a monthly basis to continue to put downward pressure on the unemployment rate. So I think we still have some runway between now and ultimately what turns out to be the low in the unemployment rate. I don't know what that is going to be, but for now, the uh, the data looks pretty good. But we're, we're pretty darn near full employment at this point. So we one are. has to wonder how much lower we can go. We are. And it, it certainly hasn't yet manifested itself in significant wage growth, although average hourly earnings um, move back up on a year-over-year basis. And I, I think that's good news. I think one of the reasons why, even with the tightness of the labor market and how low the unemployment rate has gotten and how strong job growth has been, that we haven't gotten wage growth some of it, I think, is secular in nature and, and, and tied to globalization and technology. But I also think it's a factor of nominal growth having been so low in this recovery. Second longest recovery in history, but the weakest recovery in history. So growth hasn't been high enough to really put that pressure on employers to raise wages, nor has it been strong enough to send a message to employees to say, I'm going to start demanding higher wages. And inflation has been low. So there hasn't been that need from a cost of living standpoint for employees to demand higher wages. So the wage inflation, it's circular in nature. It's kind of a chicken in the egg. And I do think, though, that we're starting to get to a a threshold here on nominal growth. The output gap is closed. The employment uh, labor market is much tighter where we are going to see um, a steadier uh, increase in wages. And obviously, that's great for Main Street. We're hearing it from all different industries. I spoke recently to the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. He's talking about the tight labor market and how it's tough for his industry to find workers. And we're also talking about the the higher skilled workers, tough to find them. So a lot of these companies are forced to raise wages to either retain the workers they have or to incentivize people to come and work for them. Um, You you talked about wages up three-tenths of a percent month over month, up 2.7 percent 
percent year over year. How does this change, if at all, the Fed's interest rate picture? I mean, I have to think the June interest rate's already baked in. Yes. What was interesting, though, is prior to the disruption in in Italy with the spike in yields there and obviously the political concerns, and then on top of that, uh, some of the worries about trade, even expectations for a June rate hike had come down a notch, uh, still still comfortably in the sort of 90% likelihood. Um, I haven't looked at the the data right uh, since the jobs report came out to see if we kind of ramped that back up to 100%. But I think a June rate hike is absolutely in the cards. Um, I think we probably also saw a little bit of an elevation to expectations that we were going to get another one to two at the end of the year. When we were going through kind of the heart of the Italian turmoil, that had actually started to ratchet down a little bit. So I, I, not, in and of itself, this number does not cement a June, a September, a December hike. But on the margin, it probably ups the expectations that that's, that's what we're going to get. And certainly this report doesn't live in a vacuum because there's a whole lot of stuff swirling around it, uh, including the possibility of a full-on trade war with our allies now that we have these tariffs, aluminum and steel tariffs imposed on the European Union, Canada and Mexico. They're starting to retaliate already. What could the impact be on jobs here and on our market? Well, I'm not sure I I understand the the perspective of the hardliners on this in viewing that that this is the way you, quote, solve a trade deficit problem as if in and of itself in simplistic terms, that's even a problem. I mean, global trade is at at record levels. I think broadly free trade has, has, has lifted the entire global economy to a higher trajectory, all of which is a good thing. And, and now we're kind of heading down this path toward tariffs not being negotiating tactics, but actually kicking in. And they've proven in the past to add to inflation, to lower growth, and in many industries to hurt uh, job growth. Um, yes, there, you, you can argue, at least on paper, that are, there are some winners and some losers. But in the case of, say, aluminum tariffs, uh, I don't quite understand the national security reasons, particularly given that if, if they go in, in place without any exemptions, China only exports about 1% of its aluminum, but Canada exports about 85% mm. of its aluminum. So I, I'm just not sure enough detailed analysis is being done on when you when you attach tariffs to input costs as opposed to final goods and how much more global the supply chain is, that you may be able to find some pockets of benefit and strength, but you're probably going to find at least as many pockets of, of weakness and, and, and job growth problems. So we came into this year thinking that protectionism and, and trade and, and the potential for tariffs was going to be a negative for the stock market. And I think for the most part, notwithstanding today's positive reaction to the jobs numbers, I think the market is sending a message that that heading down this path, if we are on a path toward a trade war, is decidedly not a good thing for the economy. Right. That could upend all the goodness we've been Absolutely. seeing. Absolutely. A rise in consumer spending, industrial right. production. Okay. Which, interestingly, when you talk about rise in consumer spending, particularly if it's boosted by tax cuts, which normally it is, there's a bit of a disconnect because if you cut taxes uh, for individuals, which we did, and it and it contributes to a rise in consumer spending, that tends to widen the trade deficit because we simply buy more imported goods than we do domestically Good produced goods. At the same time, if you're using the trade deficit as a yardstick to measure whether tariffs make sense or not, 
it, they're at odds. Right. And I don't hear enough people talking about that disconnect. You know, President Trump, when uh, imposing these tariffs and then talking about possibly imposing tariffs on the auto industry, talked about how this was a, a national security concern. You're not the only one to challenge that and not quite see how the dots are connecting. But how much of the strength we are seeing in the job market, how much of that is because of President Trump and what he has done since he's been in office? Well, I, I there's no way to quantify that. I don't know the answer to that. Should he any get any credit? Than, well, I, I think that the, the animal spirits that kicked in, that manifested itself in things like the NFIB confidence uh, measures, I think that had a lot to do, not necessarily just because of the man who won the presidency, but the, the, the structure of, of Washington and Congress and a a platform of deregulation, tax reform. Uh, so I, I think that was a component that that really did something unprecedented, which was lift the so-called soft economic data, the confidence-based, survey-based data, to a degree we've never seen above the actual hard data. And that gap is still fairly wide. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we, we we still have to start to see it more consistently in uh, in the hard data. But, but also... We had last year the first time in 10 years where all 46 OECD economies were in growth mode and two-thirds of them were in accelerating growth mode. We are a global economy. The world is much more globalized. So I think a lot of credit to the economy and to job growth is a function of this synchronized global growth that we enjoyed. And on top of that, the fact that we came out of a four-quarter earnings recession late 2015, early 2016. Now, I don't want to go as far as saying, so therefore it doesn't matter who got elected. Those were tailwinds, but those were tailwinds that, that had very little to do with what happened in the 2016 presidential election. I think the deregulatory piece has been a very powerful one and one that doesn't get talked about as much as the, the, the sort of the fiscal policy component of things. You know, I would ask you if you how much lower you think the unemployment rate would go. But I know, Lizanne, that you do not give forecasts. You do right. not give predictions there at Charles Schwab. Why is that? Well, number one, I'd be wrong. Um, <laughs> and most people who do forecasting are generally wrong. But the primary reason is that whether it, whether it relates to uh, economic numbers or more importantly, uh, market-type forecasts. So uh, probably the most common one put out there by market strategists at just about every firm, uh, with the important and notable exception of Charles Schwab, is the year-end price target. Um, You've heard uh, that the S&P 500, right, we, got, we believe it'll end up here. I, I don't know where it's going to close today at 4 o'clock, mm -hmm. let alone on December 31st, if that's even a market day, um, is going to close at 4 o'clock. But mm -hmm. the more important reason is, what is the value of something like that to an individual investor? And when we think about the, 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 the value proposition we provide to our investors in, in providing that education and perspective and uh, understanding of what's going on in markets and the economy and the connection between those two, I think things like year-end price targets um, does nothing more than really sort of foster more of a short-term perspective, more of a trading mentality, less discipline, and... Um, that's that's the sort of surefire way to uh, trip yourself up as an investor. And we truly do believe in 
long-term discipline around strategic asset allocation and rebalancing the, the stuff that unfortunately is sometimes boring to talk about, whether it's oh, a podcast mean, or... You mean the fundamentals? The, the actual fundamentals. And and uh, so that that's the that's the more important reason why we don't do things like, you know, t- price targets on the S&P. You're the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. You're looking at things from a very unique perspective. What do you believe is the biggest mistake an individual investor makes when looking at their portfolio? There's a number of them. One, I think when oftentimes when investors will make a decision about their risk tolerance, they will tie it directly and in some cases almost exclusively to their time horizon. I am I'm 25 years old. I'm not going to retire till I'm 65. I'm using basic numbers. I have a 40-year time horizon. Therefore, I need to take an aggressive approach. I don't care how old you are, as a 25-year-old, a 6-year-old, if you, as an example, are going to obsess over every wiggle in your portfolio and at the first, say, 10% down move in the market, you're going to panic and sell everything, I don't care how young you are, mm-hmm. you are not an aggressive investor. I had the wonderful pleasure of meeting the the late, great Sir John Templeton mm. um, when I was on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser, and he talked about how an aggressive investor he had always been. He was in his 90s when I met him. So clearly it wasn't a time horizon issue. It was a willingness and understanding of the risk and a willingness to take it. So those are all, which is why the, the other way I sometimes get that question is investors will often ask me, so, so what do you think I should right. do right now with my exposure? So what would you recommend exposure between stocks, bonds, cash? And I say, well, I don't know enough about you as an investor. And I think that the mistake is that I could have a high, high, high conviction view of what I think the stock market is going to do. What I would tell a 22-year-old investor that just inherited $10 million doesn't need it, doesn't need to earn income on it, goes bungee jumping on the weekend. (laughs) And what I would tell a 75-year-old investor who needs every dime that they earn and needs to earn income on that. Two different investors, one view on the market, two completely different um, recommendations Mm -hmm. in terms of exposure. And then the last mistake I think investors make is that when they try to connect fundamentals and the stock market, earnings fundamentals, economics fundamentals, oftentimes they'll say, I'm not going to feel comfortable as an investor until the data is good again. Uh-oh. Think of March 2009. The mm-hmm. data was absolutely horrific. But the market, the stock market has an incredible ability to sniff out inflection points when this data stops getting worse and starts getting better. But by definition, when you're at the bottom of the V, the data in an absolute sense is at its absolute ugliest. But we know with the benefit of hindsight that periods like that are unbelievable launch points for the market. The same happens in the opposite direction. So sort of you get to the point where be careful what you wish for. If you're looking for universally strong data that's being hyped, um, that tends to be when the market peaks out. Look at the data in March of 2000. The economic data was absolutely phenomenal. The earnings data was phenomenal. We know with the benefit of hindsight that was exactly at the market top. So I think that the stock market tends to be skeptical about hype and more often than not rolls over in an era of hype and loves to find that moment of hope where the data has stopped getting worse and start getting better. And I think understanding the connection between those two things probably serves investors, uh, would serve investors very well. Do you believe, I mean, investors who may have been sitting on the sidelines and are seeing these great economic numbers coming in, they may have missed the boat, right? right? So do you believe that the market is at peak level right now? I think that it's time to start to watch for a transition from late stage economic uh, data to peak economic data. For the most part, I don't think we're there yet. 
Um, if there's one benefit to this having been the, the weakest expansion in history is that we haven't built the kind of excess and extremes in the data that would suggest we're, we're at that risk of rolling over. But I do think we need to start to look for the signs that we're moving from late to peak. Um, I do think the one thing that probably is at or close to a peak is the earnings growth rate. Not earnings in a, in a dollar sense, but the growth rate in earnings. Because we saw this massive benefit accrue to corporate profitability from tax reform. But that is not purely one time in nature, but the benefit on a year-over-year growth basis is front-end loaded. And now I think we have to start to um, look into 2019 at what will inevitably be a lower growth rate uh, in the number. So we should we should start bracing ourselves for earnings that are not quite as spectacular as we've, as we've been seeing? The, one of the problems that tends to happen when you get surges in earnings like this is is the bar gets set too high, right? And or the the strong growth gets extrapolated too far into the future. That may not be a risk for say next quarter because I think we we still have the tailwinds of fiscal policy and tax reform, but it's a risk to be mindful of that the expectations bar. In fact, the best performance for the stock market, believe it or not has come in the zone where S&P earnings growth is between negative 10% and negative 20%. Really? The zone of 20% earnings growth or higher, the highest zone, the market has barely had positive returns. Why again, is that? Again, it's inflection points. Yeah. The market's a leading indicator. Right. Earnings, as reported, is what happened in the past. So the market says, all right, up 20%. At some point, it doesn't get any better than this. And the market tends to discount that in advance. Much like when earnings are imploding and they kind of start to pick up, the market says, all right, the worst is probably over. Maybe we should trust the markets a little more. Um, they seem to know something we the, don't know. The, the, the market is generally smarter than most investors. <laughs> <laughs> Liz Ann Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Thanks for spending so much time with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Be sure to rate, review, and share this podcast, and remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode.